I'm Leanne Tran, psychologist who's worked with families whose kids don't fit the mould for almost 20 years. I've worked with children for decades, but I know parents are the real change makers when it comes to their kids. Having three kids of my own means I know it's not easy. Parent Like a Psychologist is all about simplifying how you support your kids with psychology information filtered through years of experience to take you from overwhelmed to confident. Come on in. Good morning, Emma. How are you? I'm good. Bye, <laughs> Leanne. Um, so today I'm talking with Emma Gilmore from Hope Rising Coaching. Um, it's lovely to have you. We've already had a, a lovely chat. <laughs> I feel like that was my favourite part already. <laughs> um, so can you tell us a bit about yourself, um, give a bit of an introduction? Mm. Yes, thank you, Leanne. It's lovely to be here. Thank you for having me, and I loved our chat as well. Mm -hmm. um, as Leanne said, my name's Emma. I run a business called Hope Rising Coaching. I work with women in midlife mainly um, who are wanting to change their relationship with alcohol, and so I'm a qualified and licensed counsellor and psychotherapist. Um, I stopped drinking in January 2020, and the way the method that I stopped drinking was using um, a method called created by a lady called Annie Grace who wrote the book This Naked Mind. And within two weeks of starting to of stopping drinking using that method, I was just so blown away with how I went from somebody who saw drinking as an absolute part of my identity mm. to a who didn't want to drink. Right. As opposed to somebody who wasn't allowed to drink. Yeah. <laughs> and there's a very different energy that you bring to your life when it comes from a place of uh, abundance as opposed to fear and scarcity, Yeah, um, which is very much the way that I work with people around alcohol as well. It's very much so around this sort of concept that the, you know, the problem's not the person. Mm -hmm. um, it's not a, it's not a person problem. <laughs> yeah. And the alcohol is just a band-aid and a coping mechanism like any other band-aid or coping mechanism, some of which are approved by society, some of which are not. Yeah. Um, unfortunately for the poor people who um, have, like myself, chose alcohol to be one of our coping mechanisms, it's one of the ones where it's got an awful lot of stigma, stigma attached to it. And so um, often, given whatever our personal upbringing was, we tend to make ourselves the problem, which makes it even worse and right. harder to get out of the cycle. Because, mm. uh, you know, the world, world around us teaches us that that's, that's the case and there's this, there's a lot of uh, parts of our society that benefit very that it keeps a lot of money coming in to uh keep us under the belief that the problem is those strange people over there who've lost their house lost their family and it must be a problem with them whereas the reality of the situation is that alcohol is an addictive substance to anybody yeah um, if you drink it to what is actually quite a low amount um, in comparison to what people might think, it is it the way that it works with our bodies is it, it, it uh, creates a, a survival um, desire for dopamine, which our body thinks it needs to survive. And because the way that alcohol works chemically in our body is it it um, it floods our body with excess dopamine, and mm -hmm. then it starts to think, well, this is a survival mechanism. I want this. It makes me feel better. Was dopamine is like a anyone who knows anything about sort of neurotransmitters and dopamine is kind of like a it's a do it wants you to do something and then you get a reward at the end of it. That's a mixture of hormone or neurotransmitter thing. That means that basically we we it with the way that the chem it works for our brain is it makes us think of the thing as wonderful. Mm -hmm. The whole purpose is to make us do the thing again and then yeah. we get rewarded for doing the thing and so it's a wanting problem so one of the greatest things about the methodology that I learned and the methodology that I work with humans around is it changes the wanting yeah so if you don't want the thing <laughs> then it's less of a problem but wanting has a friction to it and nervous system dysregulation 
um, like so many things in our in our worlds. But my personal my personal experience was I worked in corporate for twenty years in marketing. I had a, what would be considered a very um, successful life on the outside. I was I had two kids in my mid thirties. I worked for Warner Brothers and Disney and Mars and those kind of really big brands. Mm-hmm. Um, I grew up in Africa in a family who drunk. It was very normal for everybody to drunk. No one would have considered anybody to be anything other than a regular drink drinker. And again, mm-hmm. this whole concept of normal is always a really interesting one. Because yeah. most of my clients come to me wanting to drink like normal people. Right. Which makes the assumption that, you know, our society perpetuates this idea that there is this normal drinking. Yeah. Reality is normal is just made up, right? Yeah. I was thinking that actually, as you mentioned it about um <clears throat> you know, some some ways of coping are more acceptable than others. And I think in the Australian um, culture, at least, the drinking is a very accepted way of yes. coping with things, and particularly for parents and mums, I think. Oh, mums, um, yeah. 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 So it's often that messaging is that it's, you know, that's just what you do. Yeah. <laughs> it is normal. And, oh, my goodness, how much was that the case in COVID? Um, mm. Mums were, especially in Victoria and New South Wales, where mums were, doing homeschooling as well as doing their jobs and all of the memes and everything on social media was all about, you know, mum's drinking to get through the day again, you know. Um, And it's, it's really interesting. There's a brilliant book. It's a 10 year anniversary of this book called drink by Anne Dowslett. I've forgotten her surname. It's Anne Dowslett and then it's a hyphen and then something else. Okay. Um, I'm actually going to interview her for my podcast um, soon because she's such a hero in this space and she speaks specifically about women mm. and, and why alcohol has such a profoundly different impact on us because of you know, things like the stress of the mental load, things like yeah. the perfectionism and the expectations of women, the people-pleasing part of the way that we've been brought up to, you know, have everybody else be okay before we make ourselves okay. Yeah. You know, that, and that those are the things that lead to people drinking. Yes. It's, it's, drinking is literally, you know, we're exhausted and we don't know how to manage ourselves in any other way. Yeah. And I think as parents too, but particularly as mothers, we also can't stop. We can't stop that mothering role. It continues on. So you have to have some way of managing the stress of it. Um, Yeah, because it's relentless sometimes. It's relentless. And especially for mums, and I know um, we've talked about this before, but I identify and I am a... um, neurodivergent human I'm an autistic ADHD mum of two autistic ADHD teens and I think what happens with a lot of the women that I work with is they have children and suddenly the things that they were able to do to remove themselves or to get some quiet time or to Mm. regulate their nervous systems they're not available anymore yeah that's such an Yeah, that's a real insight for me. I hadn't thought about it that way. So many women say to me, I had kids and then it was like the noise, the intensity. You can't, and you can't go, I'm going to go and sit in my room and put my headphones on and just wait till everyone goes away. Yeah. Yep. (laughs) It's like you've got to feed the people, you know? Yep. Yep. You've got to make sure you've got to be the safety controller. (laughs) And then for a lot of us, you know, neurodivergence or humans we've been brought up with this whole sort of productivity culture perfectionism you know everything has to be controlled and we're coming from a place of you know things need to be just so in order for us to feel okay Mm -hmm. and other humans don't know these rules right yeah (laughs) not bought into the like everything needs to be just so so Mm -hmm. that we can be okay rules (laughs) and they're just doing all kinds of stuff yeah (laughs) 
<laughs> at yeah. inappropriate times and we might be in a hyper focus moment and someone comes and interrupts us you know there's it's it, it adds an ed- additional layer of nervous system dysregulation which in and of itself is really why people drink people drink because their nervous system's dysregulated and they don't know how to manage that in another way mm. that's really it like we are st- often, I mean, there's a lot of stuff behind that. So our nervous system might be dysregulated because of the meaning we make about a situation. So for example, if our kids are kicking off, I was just talking to Leanne this morning about, because both my kids struggle with going to school. One of my kids has chronic fatigue and autistic burnout. And the other ones had to change schools because of bullying. And um, it's a, Getting to school for us is very different to people whose children go to school easily. Yes. Um, and it's a normal part of the day. So I was saying to Leanne, if I still drank, you know, this morning and the last few mornings since we've been, you know, this whole trying situation, because trying has an energy to it for everybody involved. And the energy of having to try not only just to get yourself as a neurodivergent parent out of bed and you know, moving, but actually having to get resistant uh, other humans in that way. And you've got to do it in a way that's not going to dysregulate their Yeah. Yep. It's like, you know, co-regulating another human being when you're already a human being who has a tendency to be quite dysregulated anyway or to feel things intensely anyway. It takes a lot of work. Yeah, absolutely takes a lot of work and you can totally I mean people don't drink for no reason that's the yeah. that's the that's the you know that if I could give one message it's like people don't drink for one re- no reason and there's nothing wrong with a person not knowing yet how to manage themselves in a different way you know mm. it's a learned skill like we learn how what our triggers are we learn the meanings that we make because there's so much judgment in our society around our children right people are so they love to give you a bit of advice oh yes <laughs> they love to come in and say well, have you tried a reward chart you're like <laughs> yes i have yep and, you know, I was saying to Leanne earlier, because my kid who's been in chronic fatigue and autistic burnout, she's a lot of people are like, you know, well, you know, they really need to just need to get out and do some exercise. And you're like, they've yeah. got chronic fatigue. They can literally not lift their head off the bed. Yeah. People think it's a trying issue. And then there's an awful lot of parental blame and all this kind of stuff that comes along with it. And so these are the beliefs that we hold. So somebody says something or, or doesn't even say something, we make a meaning about the fact that our family's not like everybody else's. Mm. Why don't I do this? What's wrong with me? And for a lot of us, we don't know our children are neurodivergent until we find out. And we don't yeah. know we're neurodivergent until we find out our children are neurodivergent, and especially for mums of, of kids who are assigned female at birth. They, girls have... And assigned female at birth, humans are incredibly good at masking. And that's why mm. we find that a lot of our assigned female at birth or identify as girls, humans are being diagnosed when they reach puberty and go into high school because the masking isn't possible anymore because of the human because of the hormones and because of the you know suddenly you're in a school where you've got to go to all these different classrooms and people are yeah. shoving you door and it's no longer your sweet little primary school where everything no. was in the classroom <laughs> you know? yeah and I think adolescence is tricky because the rules change um you know what you can learn the rules in primary school of how you play and get along and then adolescence the rules change and it's really hard to pick out the ones you're meant to follow. Um, Yeah, so all those things come together. It is often a time when families are, you know, finding out more about how their children are made. That's exactly right. And I I so remember with my two kids, both very different, both autistic, absolute opposite ends of the kind of like (laughs) what you'd imagine. Um, and I say, remember my big kids when he was in primary school used to do all these beautiful things like going out and dancing in the rain and getting told off for doing that or sitting <laughs> under the desk and reading his book. Um, whereas my other kid was like, would appear on paper to be absolutely, 
your ideal child. Right. And that's she's the one who's had the worst that the nervous system dysregulation of you know, finding yourself at home, which was your safe space where you didn't have to put your mask on for the whole of COVID and and school coming home to your safe space. Mm-hmm. And that just was a sort of everything went to crappery in our world after that. Yeah, yeah. Because, you know, it's like this control thing, isn't it? We're holding everything so tightly. Yeah. And then it doesn't take much to break it all apart and I think that's you know us as humans generally there's so yeah. much control and fear in our in our lives because that's what keeps us safe it's like if I do all the things same with eating disorders same with so much I mean, for, I'm speaking about that as a person who's had disordered eating both my kids struggle a little bit in that area as well um all these strategies are strategies that we use to keep us safe right because we're afraid of what will happen and the only way that we can keep some semblance of feeling like we have agency mm. in our lives and the fear of what might happen if we loosen that grip and is is quite is quite terrifying isn't it? it can be like wow it's a bit like if i open the dam on my emotions jeez I might drown. I may <laughs> I never, ever, ever be able to stop that tsunami. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And I get that, right? I totally get I was saying to Leanne earlier, I used to think I was, uh, for a lot of my, and I'm sure it's, a, it, I know now it's a coping strategy, but I've spent a lot of my life with very poor interceptive awareness, very, um, with Alex, um, athemia for me, which is that I don't if I find it difficult to feel things in my body and I find it difficult to identify an emotion. Mm. And so a lot of my work and the work that I do with my clients and with my kids, who sometimes want to do it with me and sometimes it's just like mum, back yeah. up <laughs> um, is around that. It's like, you know, how do we how do we make our our humanness, our ourselves safe? How do we make ourselves a pl- safe place to be? Because We've never been taught. No one ever taught us how to hold ourselves in our distress. Mm. It's not demonstrated to us. And certainly from my generation, it was always, you know, you're either too much or, you know, it's like you're, you know, you're too, too loud, you're too excitable, you're too. I have so many clients who've had that um, story. I've definitely had that story told to me. Um, but the other part is you weren't allowed to get upset, you know, you're not allowed to yeah. feel stuff. It's like suck it up. Yes. Get yeah. on with it, you yeah. know. And also that pressure to be perfect, to be, you know, you get love by doing all the things. You yeah. Know? So if your external validation, which you need as a child in order for you to survive in the world, you know, you need to be loved. Yeah. Um, that's all about control, you know, as well. So it's a place of safety. And reality, it sounds funny, mm-hmm. but alcohol is often a place of control for people too. It's like I can control this. Mm-hmm. I'm feeling this really big thing and I can control this because if I if I drink, then I can either sort of, because usually when you drink, it sort of takes you away from yourself a little bit. Mm-hmm experiencing you get like a little bit of distance and so for often for people it's like I you know I get a little bit of distance from my anxiety I get a little bit of distance from what's going on for me and I feel like I'm getting relief it feels yeah. like a relief from stress you don't feel it as intensely but I'm not really I'm, I'm basically numbing out I'm mm. numbing out I'm escaping from my experience of life because I don't know how to manage it yet Mm. that's what I teach in my work is like, okay, so let's get down with it. Let's, let's see what's happening with these emotions and let's learn, you know, little tiny, tiny bit by tiny bit, how to ground ourselves in our space and how to, you know, kind of be like a, a DJ with a, a mixing desk of, you know, going into your emotion a little bit and then coming back out again and grounding and, feeling your bum on the seat and your, you know, your feet on the floor and learning those sort of beautiful 
Um, there's a lady called Emma. I've forgotten her name as well. I'm sorry. Perimenopause or ADHD brain. There's yeah, that, but she is Adelaide based. She's an autistic human, um, and she's done a whole piece of work for the schools around interceptive awareness okay. and even things like um, one of the tools I teach my clients for in the moment. Um, whereas a lot of our work has to be done outside of the moment because as you yeah. know the moment we're um but outside of the moment and reflecting back on the moment and kind of working out what's going on is a lot of the work but in the moment there's some great tools even just like I'm sure you know these ones Leanne but like if you scrunch your hands together or your feet in your shoes for like 30 seconds Mm -hmm. really tight and then after 30 seconds just like release them and really focus on and you can do that without anyone realizing you know you can yes new foot in your shoe yeah and and just noticing like how your webbing feels between your toes and you know what it feels like differently in your foot and this can be hard for us neurodivergent humans too but it's a really great way to train our brains mm. to start being able to you know notice things and then what happens is when we're noticing it's like that mindfulness thing is the minute you start noticing what's happening in your body you're you're no longer you can't be in fight or flight at the same time so yeah that's a really good tip because I was thinking about this um you know the experience of stress as parents and we often get taught to do things like self-care and that kind of thing but it seems really that that's a few steps on from the experience of being overwhelmed or stressed in the moment yeah and I was just going to ask if you had any strategies and but you've already told them because I think that's um they're the bits that get you through the moment so that you that the moment, you yeah. think about how you're going to approach and your stress and reduce it later on when you're calm but in the moment that's not the time for that kind of planning that's exactly right and so there's physical ones physical ones are great anything somatic is really cool um, but then afterwards, I, what I find really useful is as well, because I think a lot of the time with us, when we're having these experiences, we start judging ourselves for having the experience. It makes the experience so mm. much more bad. Yeah. Or we just deny our experience. Or we're like, that happens so often with women. We're just like, well, I shouldn't, you know, I shouldn't be in fear. I just told myself I just need to sort of get on with it. You know? Yeah. So, yeah. Stop overreacting. Yeah. Or just calm. Can you just calm down, please? Yeah. Like, <laughs> You know how you know how many of us have ever calmed down when someone tells us to calm down. <laughs> no one ever, <laughs> especially like to ourselves. It's like we've got this nasty little war of like this judgy part of us. Yeah, yep. old. It's also just trying to keep us safe. But yeah, then the part of us that's like having the experience isn't allowed to have the experience because judgy's coming in and going. You know, you can't have your experience. And and so one of the things I teach my clients to do as well is. And again, it's an after it's looking at, but it's like allowing ourselves to have the experience. Like mm. if we're feeling really frustrated and angry and upset, it's like just to, one of the things I, I do is we we talk about, you know, like just touch a bit of skin, a little bit of fabric. And it just kind of helps to kind of remind yourself that you're a human being and you've got skin mm. and, you've got fat and there's fabric there. And then it's like that kind of, then you can start to kind of comfort yourself. It's like, yeah, this is really hard. Instead of going to the, they should be and I should be and what's what's it going to think and how am I going to get to work and oh fuck, excuse yeah. my, language. it's yeah. it's it's you can just be like this is hard, yeah. Sitting, let's just sit for a second before we go back into the game. This is hard. This yeah, and this is hard. And we don't do that enough. And it makes me, and then we become human, right? But like, this is hard. We're all trying so hard. They're yeah. Trying, I'm trying hard. We do, we're not be, We're not trying to be horrible. We just want, we're frightened for them. Because a lot of the time I find with parents of neurodivergent children, we're catastrophizing as well. You know, not only is it like, I'm going to be late for work. And what does that all mean? But also mm. we're like 20 years time. It's like, oh my goodness, they're going to be, they're just never going to have a life. They're going to be in a basement watching video games. And, and all of this stuff comes from a place of love. Yeah. It's, it's, it's just very unhelpful in the moment to be yeah, like. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. And, and I think we need to hear more from people who, who actually say, do you know what, this, this, 
this pathway that we've all been sold that is normal, it, this is not how our children have to be. Like we yeah. do not have to go to school, go to university, get a job, get married. This is just made up, right? It's made yeah. up. Yeah. And in our world now, mm. like I don't know about you, but I I stopped my career at 46, retrained as a counsellor and psychotherapist, and now I'm an alcohol coach. I mean, how it's like when my kid is not, she's not been to school for three years, but you know what? She's absolutely fascinated, could tell anybody all about the figure skaters in Russia and the Romanovs, you know? Right. If if she has her passion and she, you know, you, you see all these beautiful neurodivergent children like Summer Farrelly, who's the chicken girl, and she's mm-hmm. doing, um, I don't know if you know her, but she's doing um, a biology degree at the moment. She's, I can't remember how old, she's like 16 or 17, but that was her special interest. She homeschooled and she's gone off and she's done that. But we don't have to, all of this stuff that we think is so solid and we have to do, it's not true, it's not real. And so yeah. it's like, ah, take a minute, it's okay. They're yeah. going to be okay, you're going to be okay. All we all need is just to take a breath and to just try and see if we can find some tools so we can regulate our nervous systems, work on our shit as parents. Sorry again, Leanne. That's but work okay. <laughs> our beliefs. Work on what we're making all these situations mean about, you know, if they're not sitting down, if they're not eating properly, if they're not, what are we making that mean about us? Mm. And, you know, in retrospect, is it true? And that whole work, belief work that we do um, yeah. around that. But nine times out of ten, it's not true. Yeah. Nine times out of ten, it's about how other people perceive us, even if we don't realise it is. And yeah. in reality, that just really doesn't matter. All that matters is that your home is a safe place for you and your babies and everybody else can just go jump. Yeah. It takes us a long time to get to that place because everybody wants to come in and bring their fear into our homes. Yeah. And, and that is, it brings an energy to it. It's like people say, well, what are you going to do? What are you going to do? I'm like, I don't know. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and sometimes it's not even that conscious saying of it, right? It's that you hear, as a parent, you hear your own mother's voice in your head saying the things that you were told and that kind of thing. So it can be... Um, yeah, really the, the voices and the messages can come from everywhere. And, and we do kind of just take them as fact, don't we? Unless you consciously weigh them up and consider them and think about it and reject some of them and maybe all of them. (laughs) Exactly. And we have to build boundaries. Like what are we going to allow in our space and what are we not? You know, Mm. sometimes like I remember reading Untamed by Glenn Doyle Mm -hmm. and her talking about her relationship with Abby and, you know, her mum being like, <gasps> and, and her having to say to her mum, you know, I, when you are ready to put your fear aside, you come into our house, but why are you bringing your fear into our house? I don't want that in our world. We yeah. don't need that. Yeah. So sometimes we have to, and this is really hard for us, we have to say, you know, actually right now I can't host Christmas. Mm-hmm. I'm not going to be hosting Christmas. And if you want to come and stay with us, is it, if you know, please feel free to get an Airbnb. But right now when I've got a trans kid and a kid who can't get out of bed, I might not be wanting to bring whatever you guys might be wanting to bring into our world. And so all yeah. a really serious conversation because we – I mean, working with clients that I do now as grown-ups who've gone through a lot of this stuff themselves, the words that the people who are supposed to love us say to us have a humongous impact Mm. on our souls. And that doesn't mean that we can't repair and that doesn't mean that we have to be perfect parents. 10% of the time is always good enough in my book. And that's what I say to clients about drinking and parenting. 10% is is great, right? 10%. Let's go for something realistic. But we do have to 
we have to be really careful. It's a boundaries thing. It's like, you know, we have to be careful who we will allow. Not everybody deserves to have our whole selves. Mm. Everybody deserves to have that. And our babies, it's a bit like, you know, when you stop drinking, I always say to people, the most important thing that you can do when you're stopping drinking is realize that you have to matter the most. And if you don't matter the most, it's going to be very, very difficult because your nervous system is always going to be dysregulated because you're always going to be putting everybody else's needs above your own. When you're putting everyone else's needs above your own, you cannot regulate yourself. Mm. So, so let do that first. Don't even yeah. worry about it. Work out how to ask for what you need and work out how to, and again, this would be my advice to people if they were thinking of changing their relationship with alcohol, be like, first things first, Work out what it is that you can't manage. What is it mm. that your nervous system is dysregulated because of? And why are you drinking? Because there's always a very good reason. You don't drink for no reason. Yeah. Body's a very clever thing. Work out what it is and then work out what you need to do in order to make your world a less fractious place for you to be. Mm. Not Most of the time is not about anybody else. It's always about you. Yeah. What do I do? How can I, how can I bring less, you know, how can I have less friction in my body about a situation? That doesn't mean you're being passive or a victim or allowing people to be uh, inappropriate with you or to behave in a way that's not acceptable to you but what it means is that when you come to have the conversation with person you're coming to it from a place of neutrality Mm -hmm. and not from a place of being three years old and yeah bringing all of that shit with you (laughs) yeah (laughs) i think that's is that something that you help people with in the big in the beginning of working with them or do you have advice about how they can try to work out what it is they're not coping with or Mm. Mm. well when I work with people we do a lot of this work so either in my one-to-one work or in my group work we we work on all this stuff all the time um and we do kind of grounding exercises and Mm -hmm. um ways of increasing your interceptive awareness um can you repeat the question because my brain's just gone that's okay (laughs) I just wondered if it's something that you help people with trying to find out what yeah. um, are those underlying reasons yes. yes, or why. I think you said something about they have to find the way that they can make sure they put themselves first. Yeah. Um, well, a lot of um, us don't even believe we're not. That's the interesting thing. With yeah. It. And it's like a lot of the things that we believe that alcohol is giving us, the opposite is true. So, for example, we'll be like, you know, people will say, how can you celebrate without having a drink or alcohol makes me fun or mm-hmm. alcohol relaxes me or alcohol helps me sleep. So first of all, you kind of have to unpick all of these because in reality, yeah. generally the opposite is true is the truth. Right. It's just like a conditioning piece. But when you're talking about the meanings that you're making about a situation. So when I'm working with a client, we'll look at what the, what the situation was that happened and then it'll be we'll go to the body immediately so it's like where do you feel it in your body because a lot of the time the narrative the story that we tell ourselves about the situation again is just not true to mm. like an avoidance tactic we get into the drama of narrative but in reality a lot of the time our body knows what's happening so if we can start to do that work on interceptive awareness understanding you know I could feel my breathing was a little bit uh, shallower. I could feel, um, and this is this is again for, for for us neurodivergent humans, this is work in progress. Yeah, because a lot of the time we can't identify an emotion, and some of us see in pictures. You know, it's just like some people have voices in their heads and narrative talking. Some people are visual. Some people just have sensations and mm. you know some of us like will notice that we've got tingling in our fingers and there's it's, it's again it's just paying attention to those cues as well and just trying to work out you know 
a lot of the time what we're having a reaction to has got nothing to do with what's actually happening. Mm. I'm sure as you've, we, we, our emotions are a reaction to, like our body has like a set, we have a set of like this, this is what we feel, this is what we do when this circuit situation happens because the story that we tell ourselves in it. So this is whole like thoughts and feelings and emotions. And, but a lot of the time for, I'm thinking one of the, people who talk about neurodivergence and working with neurodivergent children, one of the things they say is the biggest thing, the biggest way that you can help your neurodivergent child is to do the work on yourself. Like mm-hmm. when you're having a reaction to something, we don't react for no reason. When we're having a reaction to something, when we're having an emotional reaction to something, when we are dysregulated and we cannot manage ourselves, it's so important that we don't brush that under the table like our parents did with us and just pretend it never happened and just yeah. say, okay, so what was going on for me then? What was the story that I had in my head about what it meant that my child was having a meltdown in Coles? Mm-hmm. You know, was, what did I make that mean about me? Mm. A lot of the time it comes from stuff way back when. Yeah. Um, and in fact, I would say most of it comes from beliefs that we formed as very young people, um, mm. trying to understand a world with a child's brain and yeah. a lot of time not wanting to believe that the world around us might not work in what might be a fair or pleasant way or that the people who are supposed to love us weren't necessarily able to reflect back our value Um in their eyes to us because of their own stuff, you know, because their own intergenerational trauma, because of the societal conditioning, because they were frightened. You know, mm. they, you know, a lot of the time it's like with eating and stuff like that. I was talking about my mum and she's always, you know, had an interesting relationship with diet and diet culture. And we talk about, she was saying to me, oh, no, I used to be really, I, I'm really judgy about people in, in bigger bodies who are eating a lot. And I was like, well, that's interesting, mum. What's that about? And turns out that when she was little, she was bullied for being in a bigger body. So it makes sense that her psyche would be creating a story around food and being in a bigger body because it wasn't safe for her to be in a bigger body. And all this stuff, there's none of us, we're not bad people. We're not like, (laughs) we're just people who've stuff's happened to. And our precious brains and bodies have made meaning out of that and create reactions because of ways that we're just literally all the time. It's about trying to be trying to keep us safe. Yeah, exactly. And it's just about so it sounds like it's about tapping into that um, the feeling of what's going on in your body at the time. And but also those messages or meanings that you're giving to the situation or something, because, you know chances are they're not like you say they're almost always not true but yeah when we form them as a child that you know if you don't question them they will continue to be there and they make us so reactive you know it's this is the issue that this is why it's so important to me that parents work on themselves Mm. and you know look at that not because they're bad or wrong or anything like that there is nothing better than a human being who's willing to look at themselves and and make some changes and grow and, you know, Mm. learn. And again, you know, what's gone before has gone before. It's our stepping stone to the next thing. Without what's happened before, we can't, we wouldn't be here doing the next thing. Yeah. It's, you know, it's like having some peace around that because none of us get it right. You know, I look back on, oh my goodness, when my kids first started not being able to go to school, the amount of pressure and sphere and energy that I brought into our homes mm. was unbelievable. And I'd get really, you know, I was really, things, some of the things I'd say were, t- you know, terrible. I'm quite lucky that my brain doesn't hold on to things too, <laughs> for too long. <laughs> but I know, you know, people do and people feel terrible. And it's like, no, it's just, you know, we're all doing our best. We're always, always, always doing our best with the information that we have at the time. And we're, yeah. we know we can change and we can do better but one of the things that the brain loves to do is blame other people Mm. and because it gives us an excuse it's like if i'm I'm blaming somebody else then i don't have to take responsibility for my stuff 
Yeah. I find that a lot with drinking. Like people are always like, oh, my bloody husband, he's drinking all around me. Oh, I'm so angry with him. And then suddenly they find that that energy has allowed them to be able to have a drink or giving themselves an excuse to have a drink because their brain went, it's not your fault. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It sounds like when you talk about it, it um, sounds like it's learning to talk to yourself with in a way that has a lot of compassion so but also is honest. Yeah, yeah. It's like that Elizabeth Gilbert poem that she wrote about fear. It's like it's acknowledging all the parts of you that make you up and knowing that none of them are wrong. Mm. And so in work, for example, I I don't have... I don't give credence to the concept of things like the wine witch because for me the wine witch is just a part of us who's trying to help us relieve our distress. Yeah. She's a part of us who's coming in to me. She, I, I, I like to think of it as like the wine saviour. He's got a little cape. He's like, I'm down here to help. You know, yeah. your <laughs> here I am. Rather than the wine witch, which we're going into battle with. It's like, yeah. little, he's trying. So he's like, we're uncomfortable. You're uncomfortable. Here I am. Yep. <laughs> he's not a bad part he's trying to help us right and so for every part it's like yes. this it's the frightened part the judgmental part so a lot of my work as well is parts work and you know working out all these different little parts of ourselves that we put away mm. when we were younger because they weren't acceptable in society and it brings us around into that whole sort of like full circle of what we were talking about at the very beginning around this whole myth of normal yeah you know, what is normal and, you know, all the parts of us as adults that we put away as children to create the mask or the personality that fed in with what society wanted us mm. to be like. And I think that's probably the greatest thing for me of stopping drinking is, is, is now four years in is being able to identify that those little humans. Yeah. You know, away at 11 because she got rejected by a friendship group and the one I put away at five because he didn't really like having people in his house when he was mm -hmm. reading um and the one I put away at <laughs> you know all of those little parts of us it's like the great thing for me when you stop drinking and when you start working on your stuff is you can start bringing them back and you you know for me like I, I discovered I'm a completely different person than I thought I was mm. was helping me to mask yeah Right. enabled me to keep going when I was exhausted and override my nervous system. Mm. Um, and so, it, like, I can't, for me personally, I would never have believed I would become a happy, alcohol-free parent and human, but I can't imagine anything. There's nothing else I've given myself that has offered me so much opportunity for growth Mm -hmm. and so much opportunity for understanding myself and building yeah. a relationship with myself so that I can build a relationship with my kids from an authentic place of fallibility than stopping drinking. It's just been the most – people think it's like, oh, why would you do that? It must be so awful, you poor thing. Not at all. I can't imagine drinking to me now. It's like, why would I do that? Why would yeah. I disassociate from myself? Why would I leave myself, abandon myself in my distress? Why would I do that? Yeah, so it sounds like you've come a, a lot more in contact with all the different parts of you and versions and know yourself better. And it sounds like found different ways to regulate that your nervous mm. system than through drinking. And I think you hit on a really good point before about, I think, you, you saying I can't remember who said it, but if the best thing to help your neurodivergent kids is to work on yourself. Um, because I think too often about how if you mentioned co-regulation too, if you're helping your kids with managing their emotions, you can only do it to the point which you're regulated yourself. Um, so that's a, exactly. that's a really important out. point. Shouting out to all the humans who, like me, have to co-regulate 24 hours a day because it's <laughs> Yes. <laughs> and it's also just normalising that as well because so many of us are like, oh, my gosh, I've got my children in my bed and they're like 15 and what the hell. But, you know, you know. 
what your kid needs. Yeah. Nobody else can tell you what a precious human that you know better than any other professional needs in order to feel safe. Mm. And then having you as the strongest, most together version of you is going to give them the best access to that. And to know, you know, I remember professionals, my, when my 13-year-old was, she was trying to go back to school with a particular um, body of a methodology around that. And I remember her coming home to me and she's saying, Mum, this person saying whether I have a bad day or a good day is dependent on whether I go to school or not. She said, mm. that's not my experience. Yeah. Like I'd, I don't consider my day to be bad when I don't have the energy to get out of bed because I'm in chronic fatigue. Mm. That's not a bad day for me. It's only, but now she's saying that and she's making me feel like it is and it's not. It's like yeah, we have to be so careful how we, because bad and good, these sort of moral terms that we use about drinking, about also eating, you know, we just yeah. have to be so careful about the morality that we place on what we consider to be normal in our society. And yeah, yeah. To be so careful of our precious little souls and how the impact of that for them, like she, like your kids knowing that they are incredible, whatever they're able to do or not do. Mm. Yeah. <laughs> and their value isn't decreased or increased by, and I know all parents know that, but we forget sometimes in our language, in our frustrations when we're dysregulated and we can make another human feel like they're less valuable than we know they are. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, so important. That could easily become one of her little um, voices mm -hmm. in her head about bad and good. So, yeah. yeah. Yeah, and for professionals as well, it's really useful to keep remembering that stuff too. Yes, yeah. What you can do has no, what people can or cannot do has no impact on their value as a human. Mm. Yeah, I m it made me think about people's potential too. The potential hasn't changed. It's, yeah. No, it's, Yeah. So our, our, is that, and that's we're bringing our shit into the world, you know, like Ooh. we're bringing our baggage. And that's the same with parenting. And, you know, I think when you're working in education, when you're working in healthcare, it's just really important. We just try and keep our side of the road clean. Yeah. And so you've got a couple of, um, so I, I think that really explains why you do what you do. Um, and hopefully it explains for parents too how, um, in a really nice way about how helping themselves is is the one of the best things they can do for their kids as well. Um, and how can parents kind of or people work with you if um, they'd like to? Thank you, Leah. That's lovely to ask me that. Um, my, my website is um, hoperisingcoaching.com. Um, so you can find most of my stuff on there. I've got some really cool little free um, tools which are really helpful if you're just wanting to sort of look at your relationship with alcohol. I've got like an awareness worksheet which allows you to just start looking at, you know, why, where things are, how they are and stuff like that. I've got a, a lovely grounding you can use, which is helpful for alcohol, but it's also helpful for any, because um, it's really about that, what you want, what am I feeling, where am I feeling it in my body, What if it had a voice, what would it mm -hmm. say? You know, actually giving ourselves some attention and then doing those sort of things like where you're touching bits of fabric and skin and scrunching up your feet and stuff mm. like that. So you just keep keep keeping yourself in the, you know, what's actually happening as opposed to what's in your head. So I've got a few of those on my website and I'll give them links to Leanne as well. And then coming up, I've got um I've got a virtual retreat, which is called Five Days to Freedom, which is gonna be so it's five days, 7 p.m. AE um, DT, Melbourne, Sydney time. Um, we're commencing the 19th of February. 
Um, and that will be kind of going through all of this stuff, but also getting the tools and tactics to take away. And if you then decided that you wanted to um, take a break from alcohol or, or take a year off alcohol or go alcohol free, it's kind of got, we we, we finish with a plan. Okay. Like get all these tools that you can kind of take away to practice. So for example, mm-hmm. having a or you know learning to kind of be with yourself in your distress as well as understanding you know working through sort of mindset stuff around beliefs and core beliefs and beliefs that society self and substance um, but then also having like a plan to go forward mm-hmm. um, and then if anyone's interested in doing a 30-day break from alcohol I do two times a year I'm going to do it this year I've decided um, I did it three last time, but it was quite exhausting for me because I coach on a daily basis for 30 days. Right. Yeah. Quite intense. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Whilst I love it, it just, I did it three times last year and it was, I was like, I don't think I can do this next year. Yeah. Fair enough. <laughs> so I'm doing it twice and I've got the one, the next one's coming up um, 4th of March is the start date. And so it's taking 30 days off daily coaching in everything that I've just been talking with Leanne about. Mm. And it's really for people who are wanting to something to be held a little bit more and to get a bit more into the reasons why you're drinking, mm-hmm. as well as um, taking that break and having that accountability of a thirty day program, but with a group, a small group coaching on a on an evening, which you don't have to go to, but it's there if you want it. And generally, mm. people do enjoy it because it's usually at that sort of time where people normally would be drinking if they were drinking. Yeah, really come in, come and talk about the craving. You know, what's going on for you? What are you yes. needing? From? Okay, yeah. let's get into it. You know, and so it's kind of it's a it's a little bit more. It's it's not superficial. It's not just about the drinking. So if mm-hmm. you for something like that I'm probably not your person I'm probably a person for somebody who's like I want to understand why I'm doing this and then create sustainable change and go from a place of I wish I could stop drinking but I don't know how to to a place where I'm so excited I get to stop drinking and here I am I've got the tools to do it Yes, and all the other things I'm going to do instead for myself. Yeah. Well, that sounds fantastic. I'll put all the links up in the um, notes and probably keep an eye on it and share the um, information on Instagram when it comes out as well for those, you know, ADHD brains like yours you mentioned that can forget things. <laughs> it's good to be right. reminded in the moment. So, yeah. yeah. So right. Thank you, Leanne. Thanks so thanks. much. For really oh, thanks so much for joining me. It was um, a really lovely conversation and I felt like it could keep going all day. But <laughs> <laughs> parents don't have time for that. Busy parents listening don't have time for that. But, <laughs> Yeah. Well, thank you. It's been lovely. You too. Thank you. Thanks for listening to this episode of Parent Like a Psychologist. If you found it helpful, please share on Instagram so other parents can benefit too and tag me at Leanne Tran Psychology so that I can say a big thank you. Head over to leannetran.com.au to join the village for bite-sized psychology tips straight to your inbox. I really hope this podcast has brought a new perspective and you a step closer towards a calm parent and a thriving child. Have a delightful day.